You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The subject we're going to talk about is Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're going to focus particularly on those two characters. And as you can see, the theme is going from disappointment and regret to rejoicing and celebration in the hope of the kingdom. I need to say something about Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, So I've got some slides and they may or may not be helpful. Uh, You don't have to look at them. And some of you quite quite a way away from them. So you might not even see them if you wanted to. (laughs) Uh, but I'm going to say something about the book in general. Some points that I didn't know myself until I'd done a bit more research than than usual. So the first point is that it's one book. Now, I know there are 66 books in the Bible, and that's a wonderful number, and we sing it uh, with the young people and so on, but I'm not sure it's actually true. (laughs) Um, Let me show you why I think that. Um, This is from the Jewish Virtual Library. It may or may not be correct, but this is uh, what they say, and I I just have read it. The Masoretic tradition regarded the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as one book and referred to it as the Book of Ezra. The division into separate books does not occur until the time of Oregon, the fourth century of the Common Era. And this division was transferred into the Vulgate. It was not until the 15th century that Hebrew manuscripts and subsequently all modern printed Hebrew editions follow the practice of dividing the books. That seems pretty categorical and pretty authoritative that Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. And I think that's to me, it's helpful because it means that what we're going to look for is what is the message of the book, not two separate messages, not two separate um, accounts uh, of different scenarios, but one message about one scenario, the reestablishment of the ecclesia uh, post-reformation, shall we say, after the pioneers have done their work. And so it makes it pretty relevant to us today. When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've been doing in our daily readings, for example, Ezra chapter 7 that we read yesterday, you remember? uh, Verse 11 says, this is the copy of the letter. So it's a copy of a letter, not, we'd say, you know, not an inspired prophetic message. Providentially, Influenced, of course, but it's actually the king's letter to Ezra, and it's become part of scripture because he's reporting, this is what the king said to me, right? This is the basis on which I'll come up to Jerusalem. And there's an awful lot of this in Ezra and Nehemiah. Did you realize how much there was of this so-called external material? Well, um, there are three returns, aren't there, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. The first return under Zerubbabel, the second return under Ezra, the third return under Nehemiah. That's what this scroll is about, you know, the first, the second, and the third returns. 
Um, but in order to describe that and to understand the influences that shaped the success or failure of those missions, we get in scripture a whole list of royal edicts and correspondence and lists, huge long lists of people, sometimes repeated. And we get what are called the memoirs of Ezra. It's written like a diary at times, isn't it? When you read Nehemiah, it's like you're reading a personal diary. Now you think, well, this is inspired scripture. So let's not miss the point. It is inspired scripture with a particular style which is incredibly modern, not in keeping with the writing of the time. And you puzzle over why we have so many extraneous I call them extraneous, you know what I mean, these official documents being referenced, even an archive search. And if you puzzle about some of the, the references uh, in Ezra, uh, where it seems like there's a double introduction, uh, this is the letter written, and then it sort of starts it again. That's because it's an archival search where documents are nested within other documents as the archive develops. So if there are any archivists here, you know what I mean, but it, it gets quite complicated. You know, librarians would understand this, you know, that documents are referenced within other, civil servants will understand what I mean. <laughs> you want to go back over how decisions were made and you find you've got to read some correspondence from earlier times and how people responded to that correspondence, but that's within another document, which is I feel like the up-to-date picture. That's what's going on. And, if you look uh, at uh, uh, one writer, I'll show her name in a moment, who I think has, has got the point. I, I think this was very helpful to me. This is uh, a paragraph from the Oxford Encyclopedia of Books of the Bible. And she says this, that Ezra Nehemiah advocates the primacy of the written word, showing the power of documents to generate events and shape it. And she's not... So, you know, this isn't a religious point. This is a historical literary point she's making, right? That this book, this scroll, is demonstrating the power of documents right, to shape history. Ezra and Nehemiah's presentation of the events is unique, not just in the Bible, but in antiquity. How is that interesting? This is, in a, in a sense, you know, looking forward to to the sort of writing that, that we might not be unfamiliar with today in our world of business and administration. But, but Ezra Nehemiah has anticipated it, showing the power of doctrine. This is who wrote that. This is a, a, writer, a, a scholar called Tamara Eskenazi. Uh, and this is from another article she wrote in the Journal of Biblical Literature in 1988. So it says, Ezra and Nehemiah's presentation of the events is unique in the Bible and in antiquity in the extent to which it employs reproduced documents to narrate the history of the period. Ezra and Nehemiah's mode of presentation places documents and climatically the written Torah as the decisive impetus for the events that transpire ultimately the Torah, the law, scripture, rather than priests or kings or prophets, becomes the authoritative source of communal life. So you see that all these documents, why they've been brought to our attention is to tell us 
that there is one document above all documents that should shape our lives and is shaping the world in which we live. Now, that, that's, you know, that's a perspective we may not uh, readily work out ourselves. You know, we scratch, where are we in Ezra? Which king is this? What's the date? And we sort of get lost in that detail. We've got to stand back and see what's going on there. You see, what Ezra is going to show us, and of course, Jewish tradition is that Ezra was the one who put together the canon of the Old Testament. Well, and it may well be true. Uh, that Ezra is the one, in a sense, who signed off the earlier books, so we know what is authoritative scripture. And the whole point about Ezra and Nehemiah is going to be about the power of the word of God to accomplish things. There was no open vision in that sense of miracle and wonder and sign. There were prophets like Zechariah and Haggai that came on early on in the time, to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua to complete the building of the temple. But what we have in Ezra and Nehemiah is the hand of God in providence. So one of the key phrases is the good hand of God. Yeah, you remember that in Ezra and Nehemiah, the good hand of God. People, Ezra and Nehemiah, are prayerful, and they're praying for events to be controlled. We don't see angels, right? We don't get that in, inside, in, insight into the, what was going on from the angelic point of view, as we might do in Daniel. What we're seeing is letters to encourage or discourage the work. And people are responding to, to these external pressures, but they're praying. And then a window of opportunity opens, and Ezra's given that opportunity. He's a man of opportunity. He's a man waiting for the prayer to be answered, and when the opportunity comes, he seizes it. So I think this is something that we need to think about today, ourselves, brothers and sisters. We are in a time, you know, a post-pioneer time, as Ezra was. I'll show you the chronology, I think, is the correct chronology, which I think is the standard chronology. That, that Ezra comes along, so 60 years after the truth has been re-established, from our point of view, that might be round about the turn of the 1900s, uh, the beginning of the First World War. From Ezra's point of view, things had started well and gone horribly wrong. Jerusalem, the ecclesia, was in chaos. It was, it was broken down. It needed to be reformed. You notice in chapter 7, when Ezra goes up to Jerusalem, who, look who goes with him in verse 7. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the porters, the Nethodim, those who were responsible for temple worship. It seems that they needed, you know, the full set to get back up to Jerusalem because things had fallen apart. The ecclesial world was fragmenting and falling apart. They didn't have COVID to encourage that. They had worse things, no doubt, uh, you know, famines and, and plagues and so on. But we understand what can happen over a very short period of time. All the hope and all the anticipation of the pioneering spirit and the, the sense of building and developing can just go <laughs> flat and leave people in depression and just lacking any energy or, or will anymore. And when others say, we should do this, yeah, we've done that. 
didn't work. Come on, no, we've done that, didn't work. And, and you get, everybody then gets dragged down by this, this cloud of gloom that settles. And the problems become giants and we can't see a way forward. And Ezra is going to do something about it. He's going to go up to Jerusalem and he is going to reestablish true worship because that's what the letter says he could do. Right. Uh, you notice, uh, let me just move on. That's, that's a standard chronology, right? I, I don't see anything wrong with it myself. I know some have thought that it should be revised completely, but I, I, and those who are familiar with this will know what I'm saying. The 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter nine works brilliantly on the standard chronology, which is why, is why I think it's correct. It works perfectly. It gets the middle of the last week to AD 30, which is by all accounts, the best date for the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And based on that chronology, what we have is between Ezra chapter six and Ezra chapter seven, we have the period in which Esther and those events occur. So in a sense, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are benefiting from Ezra and Mordecai. Right? They have the goodwill of the king uh, and they are being given blessings to to go up and to receive it. And you'll find also that Ezra and Nehemiah has a symmetrical structure. If you, if you took the scroll uh, and you know, rolled out the full scroll, you'd see there's a symmetry between the first return and the third return. In fact, one of the long lists of returnees is repeated. So the returnees under Zerubbabel, uh, 70 odd verses in Ezra one and two is repeated in chapter seven of Nehemiah, right? That's a strange thing, isn't it? You know, you read dozens and dozens of names. Uh, why, why give us the list again? You know, it's, it's a strange thing. But what it does is shape this whole narrative around the central part of the text. Now, that central part may be the least popular part, all right? It may be the part we skip over because we don't like it. And that's a challenge, isn't it? To actually face up to what it is. Well, what is it, brothers and sisters? See, the theme running through Ezra and Nehemiah is one of separation. Right? You ever look at Ezra chapter four? Remember this well, Ezra chapter four, Verses 1 to 3. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built the temple unto Yahweh God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezahadon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto Yahweh, God of Israel, as the king of Cyrus, the king Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Now, of course, this was an exclusive spirit, wasn't it? Yet it was a right spirit. It was the godly spirit. Others wanted, they wanted an ecumenical movement. They wanted an open fellowship. They wanted an open table. They wanted to join in uh, where they felt they shared an interest. 
But Joshua and Zerubbabel said, no, it's not for you. This is for us. It doesn't mean, okay, Gentiles were not welcome. Of course, they were, have always been welcome to embrace the hope of Israel. But it's the hope of Israel. And nobody can change that. So that was the principle. We're not going to join in and sacrifice, compromise the principles of the truth because it's not for us to do. That's not our truth. You see, and we're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't we? And it's for the Lord Jesus to tell us what to do. We don't sit down and say, you know, change the bill, cross that one out and write this amount. We're told to keep faithfully what has been committed to us. And then you'll see in Nehemiah chapter 2, in the third return, the same issue arises. And Nehemiah restates the principle. In Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite and Gershom, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us, because that's how the world sees us as Christadelphians. You know, they see us uh, as laughable. And that's one of the things we have to bear. It's hardly to compare with our brothers and sisters in other countries, is it? Some of whom have uh, lost their lives because they've embraced the truth. That, that those will laugh. But, you know, peer pressure is such. Social media is so powerful. It has such a grip on the minds of of so many, uh, I'd say especially the young, but it's not especially the young anymore, that people want to look good in, in, in front of everybody. They, they want their best face put forward. They don't want to be laughed at. They don't want to be seen uh, not to be one of the group. Ironic, of course, because in a world which sort of celebrates, be yourself. To be yourself, you have to be part of the group. Otherwise, you feel hard done by and... Uh, uh, you feel judged and, and all those phrases now, which are very, very modern. But look what he says. Verse 20. Then answered I them, this is Nehemiah, and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right no memorial in Jerusalem. And see, that is the theme that is going through. Can this ecclesial community in Jerusalem maintain its separation? Therefore, therefore, why separation? The distinctiveness of its identity and the distinctiveness of its mission. Can it be a light in a dark world? That's the question of Ezra and Nehemiah. And without miraculous powers, without uh, wonders and signs, it's just the documents of the written word which are available to answer that question. And when Ezra comes up, you know, he, he is, we look at Ezra in a moment, but uh, let's just look at Ezra in chapter 7. This is how the king sees Ezra. I've got a slide later on, an artist's impression of Ezra, and it is absolutely right because he stood there with a scroll in his hand right he stood there now he hasn't got a little bible he's got a scroll in his hand what scroll is it well it's probably you know 
the whole of the law. You know, he probably has to have a, a trolley in front of him to carry it around. But this is how the king sees, the Gentile king sees Ezra. Verse 11. Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Axerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of Yahweh and of his statutes. Verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, and to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Verse 14. For as much as thou art sent to king of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of thy God, look at this phrase, which is in thine hand. Which is in thine hand. See, I, whenever Ezra comes before the king, he's got the scroll. I think it's probably the scroll of Deuteronomy, but maybe uh, another scroll. But he's got the scroll in his hand. And the king will ask him, oh, just a minute, there it is. Because he's called in chapter 7, a ready scribe, right? He was a ready scribe. And that means he was quick. Yeah, he was quick. Uh, when I went to Bible school in Guyana many years ago, uh, on the afternoon, I was thinking we might have the afternoon off, you know, and a uh, game of cricket with the Guyanese, that would be good. Uh, and I was expecting this now, and no, no, everybody was in, in the hall. And the game was find the passage quicker than anybody else. And that was the game. And the children were fantastic. They, they were racing up the hall. You know, you give them, give them a, a passage and, they, and they'd run down. And they played that for an hour. And I didn't get my game of cricket. <laughs> uh, find the passage. They were trained to be ready scribes in that sense. You know, where does it say? You know, we ask each other, where does it say? Um, oh, 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 we're strong. So, oh, I don't know. Where's my phone? Where do, you know, but they, Ezra, Ezra knew where it was written. Right? That was his job to know. The law was in his hand. It says again, verse 21, the third hymn, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. And then in verse 25, I think this is really good. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand. Right? It wasn't just law, was it? It wasn't just statutes. But Ezra must have explained to the king the beauty of that word, the principle embodied in those statutes, the wisdom for how to bring a people from uh, the world of Egypt into becoming a special people of the Lord. Of course, when he comes to Jerusalem, he has completely deflated because it is so bad. He is so other than what he is wanting that he, he collapses in disappointment. But he has a friend, a man called Shechaniah, who helps him to his feet. And despite how bad it seems, they get on with the job of separation. And Ezra chapter 9 and 10 is about that separation, painful as it was, where the wives, the foreign wives were put aside, it doesn't mean... They weren't looked after, that the arrangements weren't made to their welfare and so on, but it meant that they 
formally had to break those alliances which they were making with the surrounding nations. These were love matches we're talking about, right? This wasn't all about broken hearts. This was about a formal trade agreement between the Ecclesia in Jerusalem and the surrounding peoples that they might benefit from that intermarriage. But they responded to Ezra and they separated. Now, I went through that. I didn't intend to um, say it all at once, but that's what the scroll is about, right? right? It's about the work that was started by Zerubbabel being completed by Nehemiah. The temple was built and the wall was built. But the real point behind that is the separation of the community from the kingdoms of this world to be identified with the kingdom of God. That's the challenge for us as a community. And the pressure's on now to remove boundaries, to break down walls, uh, to open doors wide. Right? Whether we will continue to be a distinct and identifiably different godly community of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. Because the internet, wonderful. It's not the internet. Uh, Zoom is, is, is useful. But what it means is that we don't need now to be physically associated with a group of people uh, who can challenge us and, you know, we can, we can discuss and we can learn from each other and we can be calibrated by their thoughts, you know. Now we can just go and be identified with whoever we want to be identified with in a world of, uh, of politics, which is called identity politics. The whole world seems to be about who are you, right? And, and which group would you identify yourself with? And it can cross all biological sensibility, can't it? Right? Well, that's the world we're in. It's never been a world like that. That's the world our young people are growing up in, and that's what the, uh, you know, the schools are indoctrinating them with. That's the challenge for us. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, in the sense, I don't know what will become of us if the Lord remains away much longer. But it's, it's, it's something that we can do something about. You know, we can get into the sense of, oh, it's inevitable. That's just the way things are going to be. No, it's not inevitable. Ezra thought there was no answer. Look, let's go to Ezra. I've got to skip over lots of things. Ezra goes up to Jerusalem. And he was a ready scribe, right? He was a ready scribe. It's a wonderful statement. And he had prepared his heart. Look at the sequence. He wasn't just wanting to teach others. First of all, he sought the Lord, right? He prepared his heart to seek and to do it and to teach. Do you see that? Right? He didn't just want to be a teacher. He, first of all, had this inquiring mind and heart into the law of God. He wanted to find the Lord. He wanted to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in our terms. You know, he wanted to be in that kingdom. And then what he wanted to do was to do the will of God. And then he could teach it. I just think that's such a, an important and simple point. 
Now, he couldn't go up yet. If you look at chapter eight, <coughs> he's got a lot of people with him. They're ready to go. But he, he says, okay, let's take three days out to take stock. And he goes around the group that are mustered there to go with him. And he says, where are the Levites? They're looking at the list of people. Lovely to have you with us. Lovely to... Where are the Levites? Why do you need Levites? Surely there's some Levites up in Jerusalem. The temple's up there. You know, no. Go and find Levites. So what he does in verse 16, I sent for Eliezer and Ariel and Shemaiah, for El Nathan, for Jared, for El Nathan, for Nathan, for Zechariah, you know, men of understanding, men of discernment, men who knew what they were going to look for to find not any old Levites, but Levites that had the special quality of good understanding of the word of God. So you see the two uh, words for understanding, they're different words in verse 17 and verse 16, verse 18. He sent men of discernment to go and find some Bible students to come with them to Jerusalem. That's going to be the key. Ezra doesn't realize it perhaps at this stage, but that's what's going to turn everything around. That he's got expositors of the word to teach, because that's what the Levite's job was, wasn't it? Besides supporting the priests and um, in the ministration of the tabernacle, their job was to teach Israel. You get this in Hezekiah, you get this in Josiah. The Levites were to teach the word of God. Oh. Come with me to uh, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because I believe that the Apostle Paul is telling us that Ezra is a role model for us in our relationship to the Word of God. Right, so you know that ready scribe, okay? That word ready means quick. It actually corresponds with the word in chapter 2, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God. Study. Spudezo, the word for speed. That's a strange word to use, perhaps, in terms of study. But if you think about it in Ezra's time, Ezra was a ready scribe. He was quick in the word, his mind was in the word of God. And you go through that chapter and first and second uh, chapters of second Timothy, and you'll see a number of, well, I think some, some echoes of Ezra in particular. In chapter eight of Ezra and verse 25, we're told that they took with them the silver and the gold and the vessels for the house of God, right? And it's in this chapter, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that he says in verse 20, but in a great house, are there not vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood, some to honor and some to dishonor? And those vessels in Ezra chapter 8, verse 29, had to be kept. It says in verse 29 of Ezra 8, watch ye and keep them. It's very uh, uh, New Testament uh, Concept, isn't it? Watch and keep. 
the Lord Jesus Christ tells the disciples that when he's away, watch and, and be faithful to the commission. And that's what Ezra did, and that's what Timothy is asked to do. So when I'm reading Ezra, I'm thinking, well, it's not just something about history there. It's something about our relationship to the word of God. Uh, you know, you know, we could start on each other, couldn't we? How often do we do the Bible readings, brother and sisters, compared with how often we used to do them? A generation ago, everybody did the Bible readings. Wasn't it true? You think of you know, my grandparents. Uh, yeah, 60 years ago, it was the norm. Knowledge of the word was very high. There was an expectation on us all that, that we knew our way around the Bible. Now, is that true now? I don't know the answer. I suppose it, it depends where you are, depends who we are. But it's a basic question, isn't it? So Timothy was expected to be a Bible student. So here are some of the lessons. So two generations on from the pioneers, people of the same faith and the same mission, recognizing the good hand of God, giving them opportunity, focused on rightly dividing the word of truth. They needed Bible students for the work of restoration, but it wasn't just Bible study, was it? It was preparing the heart to seek, to do, and then to teach. And those faithful people were entrusted with the vessels of gold and silver, the vessels of faith, the brothers and sisters and young people of the ecclesia that they might watch and keep them in the way. That was the duty of the ecclesia at that time. To build up the walls, not to pull them down. To manage the gates, not to ignore them. Now that's our duty, brothers and sisters, in these last days. No matter what's going on around us, that's our duty. That the word of God comes through that is the word of God rightly understood through careful careful study of the word and, and, and discussion with one another and working out what is the will of God that we might continue to be a distinctive people that uphold the principles of the truth and that it is not just diluted and, and frittered away as if it really didn't matter compared with how I'm feeling about things at the moment. Now, Ezra comes back and he, uh, he, he realizes when he comes to chapter nine that this community doesn't really exist as he thought it did. He thought he was coming to an ecclesia which needed support. You know, they needed some better Bible classes. They needed some singing lessons. They needed, you know, to uh, up their game in the offerings that they were offering. They needed, they needed, you know, to, to get smarter about what they're doing. But when he got there, he was 
disconsolate because what he found, verse 2, they have taken of their daughters, that is whose daughters, look in verse 1, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, these were the Canaanite tribes. That's what he's saying. It's as if we've gone back to when Joshua came into the land and the children of Israel come into this land and instead of displacing the tribes, they just say, let's intermarry. Now, where would Israel have been? Well, it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have existed as a distinct entity. Verse 2 says, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. And I'd say it's not just there were love matches, you know, that went outside marriage out of the truth. Not a negligible issue at all. But I don't think, you know, it would be right to say that's what was happening. Uh, you don't get a mass movement of marriage outside the truth. Most young people look to marry within our community. They do. Even still today, don't they? Right, so this isn't this is a policy of the parents because they didn't have love matches. They were arranged marriages. And dad thought it's a good idea to let his daughter marry that guy, and there'd be something in it for the family. So they saw material prosperity based upon this loss of separation and distinctive identity. And Ezra is dismayed. His prayer is a wonderful prayer. We can't spend time to look at it now because I just want to get to this point. And he says in chapter 9, verse 15, if you look at his prayer, daily reading, uh, you look at that prayer and, and he says, you know, oh, you gave us an opportunity. You gave us a moment in time. You know, the, the window of opportunity opened and we blew it. We've lost it. The opportunity's gone. It's gone. What are we going to do? There's no hope. We cannot stand. Things are so bad. And he says at the end of his prayer, we cannot stand before thee because of this. And then Ezra slumps down. He is literally brokenhearted. The tears are flowing out of him. He's, he's shaking with grief and disappointment. This man of the word, this man who loved the word, who set his heart upon it, who wanted to do it. Right? This man who was given the commission by the king to go up to Jerusalem to revive the community with Bible students to get people back to the word of God, found that the ecclesia wasn't an ecclesia. It was an ecumenical mess. And he didn't know what to do. He's brokenhearted. There's lots of reasons why we might find this chimes with us, one sisters. There are lots of reasons why we might be so, so disappointed that we can't see a way forward. It may be the ecclesia, it may be that we are totally dismayed by what our ecclesia or another ecclesia has done. We just, all we can see is the problems and, uh, and what are we going to do? And others who are not doing what they should do. So what do we do now? 
you know, what, what am I going to do in mumbles for something going on somewhere else in the, in, in the ecclesial world if those nearby don't do what they should do? You know, uh, or the disappointment may be in other people who've let us down or who aren't behaving as we think they should. And, and we've lost faith in our brothers and sisters. We find people in the world are friendlier, more caring, more cheerful for sure. Seem to have more hope, more resilient. Or the disappointment may be ourselves. The bitterest disappointment. This is how we imagined life of the truth was going to be. And then it doesn't happen. Or we fall flat in our face. Or we thought by this time, I would have found a partner. Or my children would have come into the truth. Or they wouldn't have left the truth. Or, I'm hopeless, I'm no good. If the Lord comes, I know I won't be in the kingdom. I know the word, and I know what I'm like. We cannot stand before thee. Well, that was Ezra at this time. Not to criticize him, that, that is, he's going through this for us, for us to learn. And there, Ezra would have, remained. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. This sorrow was contagious. It wasn't just Ezra there on the floor. I mean, he's actually physically collapsed. Everybody it's in tears. And this group of people were there. So do you know they got a specific designation? Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. These were Bible student brothers and sisters. These were brothers and sisters who loved the word of God. And they congregated around Ezra to be taught the word of God. And they understood Ezra's disappointment. They understood what Deuteronomy 7 told Israel. They understood the word of God. And they understood why he was so sad. And it was so sad. We cannot stand. And there they would be. If it was not for Shechaniah, verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as have born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee, 
just, that is a remarkable statement. Here you see somebody collapse like that in sorrow and grief. It's not the time for exhortation, we would think. <laughs> you know, these are words. So can you see, brothers and sisters, you say somebody sorrowing for the loss of a loved one. Don't be kind. Don't make trite comments. Don't, 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 don't dismiss their sorrow. Don't tell them to snap out of it. Or somebody is really depressed. Don't, don't, don't speak to them in a way which says, pull yourself together, or implies they're lacking faith. Uh, you know, or says, don't worry, there'll be a resurrection. Uh, you know, that's not helpful. But Shechaniah realizes that Ezra is key to, and you can't let Ezra stay there. You can't let him stay in that sloth of despondence. You can't, he's got to get up. Ezra, this matter belongeth unto thee. We'll help you, but you've got to show us how to do it. And slowly Ezra gets up. Shechaniah says in verse 4, arise. Verse 5, then arose Ezra. Now, he didn't eat and drink. We're told in verse 6, he mourned. He was still in a, a real depression because of this. And, you know, 13 years go by before we meet Ezra again. For 13 years, he disappears from the scene. Did his depression last that long? What was he doing during those 13 years? Well, it wasn't rebuilding Jerusalem because when Nehemiah comes along 13 years later, the walls are broken down, the gates are broken down, the community does not seem to have been able to build anything substantial. But, You'll see what Ezra's job was in those years. But let me show you this. You see, what was it that Shechaniah really said? Right? Ezra's just said, we cannot stand. Where does Shechaniah's mind go? It goes to Psalm 130. Let's do that before we break. Look, Psalm 130. This is what Esther is really saying in verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? We cannot stand. But Shechanai understands the point of the psalm. Verse 5 says, I wait for Yahweh, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Ezra, this is what you've been teaching us. You've been teaching us that when we cry out of the depths, we're crying to the Lord who will not mark our iniquities. Because if God should mark our iniquities, who could stand? None of us can stand. Not just us, the worst of people, but even the best of people couldn't stand. If God should mark. So Shechaniah is saying to Ezra, Ezra, you said we can't stand. That's not what you've been telling us. You've been telling us with the God of Israel, there is hope. 
arise and be of good courage. It's the psalm, I believe, that Shechaniah has understood fits perfectly the situation of Ezra. He's just said, we cannot stand. You're quite right. If God should count iniquities, transgressions, all of these are going to count against us. We're in a shocking condition. It's not hopeless because there is forgiveness with the Lord that he may be worshipped, that we may have a way back to the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how are we going to know that without good Bible instruction? Come on, Ezra, get up, help us, and we'll do what the word of God says. And on that basis, Ezra got up, and it took him a while. It wasn't an immediate, instant sorting out of the problem. It took them months, but they sorted it out. And that's where we leave Ezra for now. What we said about uh, Ezra, uh, I think it's really important and really helpful for us because, you know, we can um, get into a state about, you know, we talk about the brotherhood, the state of the brotherhood. So what we're talking about is one small part of the ecclesial world. You know, we're not talking about Mozambique uh, or uh, you know, Pakistan, or we're talking about this particular part of the ecclesial world. And, now, it's a minority part of the ecclesial world, isn't it? There are more Christadelphians by far in Africa than there are in Britain. So, you know, we just need to keep that in perspective. And I realise the responsibilities that we have in this country uh, go beyond the shores of this country. And we are still in a position to help uh, the truth forward uh, by the good hand of God. And something we, we mustn't, uh, you know, because our local situation and the society we're in is in a sort of a spiral downwards uh, we shouldn't let it uh, affect us so deeply because the scriptures are going to lift us out of that that's why it's so important you know not just to skate over them not not just to yeah yeah i know that you know, remember the story no no get the bible as it in our hands and i think you know those who use uh, bibles on computer which i do uh, and on the phone, which I have, it's not a substitute for opening the pages of scripture. It's really not. I think psychologically, it's not the same. And I've said that to some young people and said, oh, yeah, no, we, we're happy. But they don't make notes. I've watched them. I've watched them in the front row. With the, with the, they're not making notes. So I don't know what they, maybe they've got fabulous memories or what's been said. It's not worth making a note about. That's, that's quite possible. <laughs> But, you know, I just ask people to, to think about that, really. And there are Bible schools in the world which, uh, and, and not, you know, extreme in any way, say you've got to bring a paper Bible and you're not allowed to use your phone during the class. That's what they say. You know, 
because it's generally understood across the ecclesial world that seeing the words on paper is really quite important for us to take the point. And you know, you go through on a computer, remember the old days when we used to look up Strong's numbers, right? And spend hours looking. And the, the pace at which we did that was the pace the brain can take it in and start to mull over it as we are looking. Now it'll come up, there it is. You know, well, I'll make a slide of that and show them. That's not the same as actually turning the passages up, looking at it, thinking about it, uh, and, um, and so, anyway, you know that. So this is uh, my summary, okay? So the distinctive identity of the body of Christ is the key ecclesial issue for us today. And when we say distinctive, we're not in any sense saying that we are better than anybody else. Sometimes people throw that at us, you know, who do you think you are? You've got the truth, nobody else has. We believe that we have discovered the pearl of great price. Why would, should we pretend we haven't? You know, and there isn't another. This is it. And everybody can have that pearl of great price. It's not as if we're exclusively saying it's just us. You've got to be, you know, born seventh generation Christadelphian to have this. That, whoever thinks like that, whoever says that, that's, that's just a, a straw man that uh, is set up to be knocked down. The distinctiveness of the truth is the distinctiveness of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the truth. It is the truth. Oh, I was brought up in my early years as a Baptist in uh, Sunday School Baptist Chapel in Swansea, Mount Pleasant Baptist uh, Band of Hope. So I know all about happy, clappy songs and so on. And, you know, I know the warmth of feeling that you get from that sort of environment. And, you know, uh, I had a lot of time for, I was only a little top, uh, you know, seven, I think, well, like six or seven when I got transferred to the Christadelphian. Sunday school where everyone wore black and all the Bibles were carried in black and it wasn't the done thing to smile in the ecclesia uh, and it was pretty somber and the five minute silence you could hear a pin drop and as a little boy uh, the rustling of any papers was uh, you know frowned upon. Contrast you know the band of hope <laughs> but when my grandmother sort of put me straight on heaven going and the devil and so on. I had no um, doubts that this is what the Bible taught because that's what Sunday school did, you know, taught us from the scriptures, you know. And you could see it, that's what it says, you know. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, and so on. And so it is the truth, not because we've inherited it, uh, without thinking about it, but because it is demonstrably the truth. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to keep the light burning. And he's warned us against a falling away from the truth. And we've got lots of scriptures about that. So we're not going to apologize for saying that we have to keep the distinctiveness of the, the body of Christ as key. And that is the ecclesial duty, the pillar and stay of the truth. That's what it is. If it's not that, it's not an ecclesia. It's not a, there are some ecclesias that don't uphold the truth. If they don't uphold the truth, they are not ecclesias. Whatever we call ourselves, the measure is whether we do it, not whether we say we do it. And we've got to rise up, Ezra. Shekinah says to us, 
Brothers and sisters, this matter belongeth to you. It's not somebody else's job. This matter belongeth to you and me. That's the power of, of it. So we must not be overwhelmed by disappointments. You know, you go for a long period of time where nobody wants to come to our special efforts. And what's the point in having them? And then, you know, we have uh, a revival in Mumbles. Brother Michael and Sister Rishmalo had moved to Mumbles and they said, we've got to do more preaching. We've got to do more preaching. We've got to do more preaching. And they plug away and they plug away and we got visitors coming. They're coming on Sunday night, twos and threes, perhaps that's it, coming to the seminars. But we haven't had that for ages, you know. Uh, so we shouldn't give up. Of course, we've got the massive influx of... Uh, uh, of asylum seekers who are, who are there to be taught, and it's our duty to teach them. Our duty to teach them. What a privilege it is to, to teach people from different countries uh, who, who are interested in, in the things of Scripture. So there is hope. Who would have predicted that? Who would have predicted that phenomena? Nobody. There is hope. And you see the value of a friend alongside it wasn't just up to Ezra. It, was, it couldn't be up to Ezra. He didn't have the capacity to stand up. He's, he's down there. Can you see him? He's still sobbing his heart out. And Shekinah, come on, Ezra, arise. Only, this matter belongeth to you. We'll help you. But you've got to show us from the word of God. And all of a sudden, the word of God and his exposition becomes the key thing. Not because Ezra has enthused them, but because they realize they need it. So the word expounded can lead to conviction and repentance. But look, I put this point there, the love of scripture and high aspirations are not enough. We have to deal with messy situations. It's all very well to wish that things weren't so. And Ezra must have you know, wished that things weren't so and couldn't see beyond that disappointment. But there are messy situations and they have to be dealt with. Uh, and it requires wisdom to do that. And the leaders who were in the wrong, like Shechaniah's father, if he's the same Shechaniah, uh, the same Jehiel who's mentioned in the next chapter, his own father was one who had to separate uh, in that way. So they had to take responsibility for their own families uh, as well as for others. And it was a work of time. Again, we, you know, we, we wish things would happen straight away. You know, uh, we made the phone call, we sent the email. Why, hasn't, uh, why, why isn't everything back to normal? Well, it's a work of time. And it's not our work, is it? Because it's the word that will make its, uh, its progress. It's the word itself. The messenger, Ezra himself, is an agent of the word. Right? And it's only going to affect those who tremble at the word. And you remember where that comes from, trembling at the word. I want to show you this because I think it is something uh, I, I overlooked, but I think it's really important. Trembling at the word is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 66. Mentioned, it's mentioned twice, isn't it? Ezra 9 and Ezra 10. The community that are gathered around Ezra are those that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. And we've been given a little insight into the power of the word that was working through Ezra and his teaching. So Isaiah 66, 
remember they've come back to rebuild the temple and, and Jerusalem. Thus saith Yahweh, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that he will build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith Yahweh. But to this person will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. And that is beatitude number one. That's so when the Lord Jesus expounds the spirit of uh, the word of God, right? the true understanding of the word of God. He says, blessed are the meek. Right? What's the first one? Right, so blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah? And what is to, to be poor in spirit? That, that's the first stage post, if you like, of discipleship. It's here defined in verse 2, trembling at the word. That is what it is to be poor in spirit. In other words, not confident in our own judgments, not, not full of our own ideas, not wanting to get our point across, but willing to receive the word of God, humbled before the word of God. Willing to be corrected by the word of God. Willing to be instructed by the word of God. That's the community that Ezra's got around him. Well, it's, it's inevitable, isn't it? Because he was a man of the word. And everybody who trembled at the word said, Ezra's in town. He's doing Bible classes in his digs. Let's go. Have you heard Ezra? He's opening the word. Oh, no, we're not interested in that. Oh, no, what we need is some practical work out here. The word of God is the starting point. Of course, practicalities come into it as Nehemiah is going to show us. So, when we come to the book of Nehemiah, we find, you know, that, uh, that, that Ezra has moved off the scene. It's 13 years later. And some of the disappointment that Ezra must have felt by the people themselves would have been compounded by the state of Jerusalem. Remember in Ezra chapter 9, verse 9, the king has given him uh, permission to go up to Jerusalem, uh, and, it, and this is what he says in verse 9 of, of chapter 9, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall. But 13 years on, there is no wall. The wall is broken down. By the way, Ezra 9 Verse 9 is the start of the 70 weeks prophecy. If you take it from that date, you come perfectly to the middle of the last week in AD 30. Without any, you know, with any uh, shenanigans, <laughs> it just comes to that, just taking the standard chronology. And then people say, what happens to the, the last three and a half years of the, of the last week? You can't prove it, but I think pretty much you can come to a, a pretty firm conclusion that the, uh, the martyrdom of Stephen and the flight from Jerusalem is the end of the 70 weeks. And the Apostle Paul was baptized just after that. He couldn't have been baptized much later than AD 35. So he's baptized after that. And do you remember what he says? As one born out of due time. In other words, I think he was born of the gospel after 
the 70 weeks had expired and now Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. But the long suffering of God waited another 40 years before the Romans actually implemented that prophecy. It was a period of grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And who'd have thought that? That rather than Jerusalem being destroyed at the end of the 70 weeks of years, that God would wait for the Apostle Paul. And wait for us so that the Apostle Paul could go out and preach the gospel to all nations. A beautiful thing. Anyway, that's... Anyway. So what have you got now, when we look at Nehemiah, are uh, two contrasts, aren't we? We've got, we've got the two, two different characters. Uh, in some ways, they, they shared uh, the same mission. They were united in faith and purpose. They were repairers of the breach, restorers of paths to dwell in, says Isaiah 58. That's what they were. Uh, but they were two very different characters. Uh, neither were called, as far as we know. You know, there was no vision. There was no uh, a message from a prophet to say, Ezra, you're going to do this, Nehemiah, you're going to do it. They, they were men of initiative, men who seized the opportunity, the accident of circumstances, the, the ways of providence. They were people who were ready. And providentially, uh, opportunities were put in their path. They were both dedicated to the word of God and the hope of Israel. They were both, and this is so important, they were both prayerful men. Aren't they? You know, that, that's just clear, isn't it? That they lived by prayer, they lived by faith, and they saw the hand of God in their lives. When they had a safe journey up to the, the land from, from Persia, you know, they thanked that the good hand of our God was upon us. They saw the hand of God at work. They were both faithful, they were both dutiful. Uh, so they were similar in many ways, right? They shared the hope. They built on the same foundation. But Ezra was a priest and Nehemiah was a prince. Ezra was a scholar. Nehemiah was an administrator. Ezra refused a guard. Nehemiah accepted the guard. <laughs> the, the same offer. You have some soldiers to go with you. Ezra says, oh, no, I, I don't need them. God will look after us. Nehemiah, here's some soldiers. Great, I'll have them. <laughs> so they, they worked out their own salvation in, in different ways. Circumstances probably not identical. There were reasons for it. Ezra, crushed by disappointment. Nehemiah. It's not that Nehemiah didn't have disappointments. He had many disappointments. But the point of Nehemiah is he pressed on. He pressed on. Ezra wasn't going to build the wall. And Nehemiah wasn't the great expositor of the word, as far as we know. But he pressed on. Uh, you know, we know this one. Ezra pulled out his own hair, and Nehemiah pulled out the hair of others. <laughs> uh, we might say uh, Ezra was an introvert. Uh, Nehemiah was more an extrovert. I'm not sure that, that, that sort of those are labels of that helpful, but you understand, you know. I think Ezra internalized his sorrow uh, and sadness, and that led to slumping down and, you know, inactivity, right? Whereas Nehemiah used that disappointment to press on. It, it spurred him on, you know, as we shall see. 
And the gates of Jerusalem are burned with fire. And you can see there, as you go in chapter one, I just point out the prayer in chapter one. I prayed before the God of heaven. We've got Nehemiah's prayer. You start chapter two, the gates are consumed with fire, so I prayed. Different prayer, probably a silent prayer, probably a very short prayer, right? But he was a man of prayer. Right? And I know uh, you could study that. Nehemiah's prayer is full of scripture. Brother Bernard will tell me I've left some of these points out. Uh, but, you know, it's full of scripture. And I think it does tell us Nehemiah himself was a man of the word. He, he was a student of the word of God and it was in him. It was, it was in him. You might say, well, was Nehemiah a prophet when he offered that prayer? Was this, uh, you know, as a psalm given through him? I'm interested in your thoughts. But let me point this out. I thought this was interesting. In, in the prayer of Nehemiah, verse 11, it says, oh, yeah, oh Lord, I beseech thee, let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant. And I wonder whether he knew about Ezra and Shechaniah's situation, whether this had been communicated back to him. I'm sure uh, there must have been a lot of communication to and fro, and I'm sure Ezra would have known Nehemiah, Nehemiah would have known Ezra before they, they started out on their journeys. And why that seems to me to be important, ears be attentive, because it's what Psalm 130 says. Uh, oh Lord, hear my voice, let thine ears be attentive. You see, a psalm that seems to have got, got Ezra back on his feet is a psalm in the mind of Nehemiah when he prays. You know, the word of God is working powerfully in their lives. So I just mentioned this now uh, because I want to come back to it later on. When, when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, uh, he goes on a secret night errand, doesn't he? Why does he go secretly? It says in verse 16 that he had not yet told the Jews that is the rulers of Judah, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. And the explanation, it seems to me, is that he didn't trust them because there was a conspiracy, wasn't there? That the rulers, some of the rulers, and the high priest in Israel were in collusion with the enemies of Israel. And Nehemiah must know something about this. And when he comes up, he, he can't trust people. So he assesses for himself what the damage is. And as he, as he uh, rides around the, the city, obviously, he comes to this place, the gate of the fountain, and he can't pass. There's so much rubble, there's so much chaos that he can't pass. And... That is something that, uh, when you think, the, the fountain gate is down, down here. Right? That's the fountain gate. So if you visit somebody, you go to the dung gate, that's where the buses used to stop and you get out and you go up to the sort of Temple Mount area, the hotel, you remember? Um, and it's still called the dung gate, and the fountain gate was just around the corner, right? And that's Nehemiah rides down and he starts to ride around that and can't because the wall is broken down. There's just chaos. What might it have looked like? 
Well, this is uh, a model of uh, Jerusalem the time and air. Brother Lane did it when he was teaching in Adelaide and he took a number of photographs which are been allowed to use but not copy. Um, and you can see, you know, the children have, have made that part for Nehemiah can't pass. So yeah, here's, here's an issue. Um, that's that's uh, an artist's impression. Uh, that's what Jerusalem looked like uh, before uh, you know, the restoration. You can see the walls are broken down. You couldn't ride a mule around there. That, that's the scene that Nehemiah saw. Uh, something like that. But this is what Nehemiah says. It was a huge task. And if you look at the stones, have you seen Nehemiah's wall? There's a part of the wall that's uh, been uncovered and sort of reconstructed, which is called Nehemiah's wall. And the enemy said, you know, if a fox would jump on it, it would fall over. Well, I'd be pretty proud of that wall. You know, there's, there's big stones, big stones. You know, it's not a trivial matter to build the wall. Uh, and, but this is the spirit of Nehemiah. So what we've got in chapter two is this. So he, he, comes, he comes back and he's now he, he talks to the nobles in verse 17. Then I said unto them, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lieth waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. I mean, think of, I meant, I said, friends, sisters, look, we're in a terrible mess. Everything's going wrong. Nothing's going right. Uh, our collections are zero. We're not collecting any money. People don't turn up for the, uh, for the special efforts. You know, half the hall is empty at the fraternal. Uh, it, it's, it's all, you know, COVID has destroyed us. It's, 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 we're never going to get back to normal. Uh, anyway, what was normal, you know? Uh, and so you go on, like they say, you know, the walls are broken down. That's it. <laughs> no, not Nehemiah. Not Nehemiah. In other words, he says, you see the distress we're in. So we're going to do, brother. Right? Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. He says, brethren, you know the mess. It's terrible, right? It's, it's derelict. Jerusalem is derelict. Do you know what happened? I was there with the king. I was the king's cupbearer. And he saw a look on my face. He thought I was plotting against him. And I said, no, I'm just sad. I'm sad because of what I've just seen. And the king said to me, so what do you want to do? Do you want to go back? Okay, off you go. Here's some resources. Here's a letter. Go on. Go and sort it out. The king said that to me. I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, they said, let us rise up and build. They said, not Nehemiah. They said, you see, it had motivated. It had motivated others. The example of Nehemiah coming with the good hand of God upon him stirred them up. Of course, Ezra's in the background, isn't it? Somewhere over this period, Ezra's been having his Bible classes. Ezra's been teaching the word. I'm sure he was. He, he wouldn't have been doing nothing. Maybe he was copying. Maybe he was sorting out the documents. Maybe, you know, he was making the canon quite clear and copied and so on, so that it would never go astray. But, but they said that. So they strengthened their hands for this work. And you can see... Uh, 
the, uh, the central part of that little pattern. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. That's wonderful. When, when you get a, what would be sort of critical mass, isn't it? Well, sometimes you have a critical mass in the wrong way, aren't we? <laughs> but uh, you know, when you get two or three of like mind, then others join and you get momentum. Yeah. And, and you get a spirit develop. And, you know, that when we, uh, before we came to Mumbles, the brethren in Mumbles, Mumbles was a small ecclesia, quite elderly, really. Uh, uh, and they decided to preach on a Saturday morning. Now, Saturday morning is prime time. Not, not for preaching, it's for us, it's family time, isn't it? Once a month on, on, a, on a Saturday, 11 o'clock, they preached. And they had loads of visitors week after, month after month, month after month. And that's con continued. And the spirit of that Saturday morning meeting, when it becomes everybody's going to be there, it becomes a tremendous atmosphere, you know. Like tonight when you sing in those hymns, you know, you get the sense of I'm in the right place. This is this is the truth. You know, we, we, we rejoicing in fellowship. So it's important for us to see ourselves as part, not this is what other people do. This is what we do. This matter belongeth to you, says Shekinah to each one of us. <clears throat> and we, we help each other along. So that's what they did. And it's in that spirit. So I'm summarizing now lots of stuff and uh, you can look at it on the screen. So I, I'm different personalities working together. We make, make allowances for that, mustn't we? Right? I hope you'll make allowances for my personality. Right? Uh, you know, that, that would be good if you would. <laughs> uh, they pray without ceasing in all situations. Right? They pray in the language and thought of scripture. In a crisis, honesty is the best one. So what Nehemiah doesn't say, oh, no, brother, it's not so bad. You know, no, it, it, don't make too much of a, a, a song and dance about this. It's not such a big problem. You're exaggerating. It's, it's just a little bit of uh, a little bit of mess. We can soon clear it up. That wouldn't have been fair, would it? Because it required total commitment from everybody to rebuild that wall. So honesty is the best policy. Admit to what the problem is. Take stock of the work to be accomplished. Be wise as serpents. They had to be wise as serpents. They couldn't just charge in and do it. Um, and the hand of God was upon them. Nothing would happen if it wasn't. So what I want to just draw your attention to, and again, I think you know this uh, as well as I do, that all these things are a grand parable, the parable of building the walls. So I think given our ecclesial situation, I think it's very helpful to, to think of Ezra and Nehemiah as written specially for us, right? because the walls are broken down in some parts of Jerusalem. Right? Now, what are we going to do? Some of those walls have been pulled down or pushed down from within. Right? What are we going to do? Well, what is the parable? Let me put them all up here. The walls. What do walls represent in scripture? Well, walls are for separation. <laughs> That's the principle. Building a wall is building separation. They can clear what's in and what's out. The rules of fellowship that the central fellowship has are pretty straightforward. 
we build upon the same foundation. When you see the wall needing to be repaired, we don't say, well, let's do a detour around here. Uh, we say, let's clear the rubbish away, find the foundation, because there is no other foundation that can be laid than that which is already laid. That's true, isn't it? The truth's the truth. That's the foundation. You can't, oh, we'll drop that bit. Well, I'll, I'll drop a bit, you know. Okay, now you say, well, yeah, how much, how much do you need to know? But for 150 years, we haven't had much problem in uh, understanding that, have we? You know, uh, even our little ones understand that. Um, so a wall is for separation. Why do you need separation? For safety, for safekeeping, for safeguarding the little ones and the vulnerable. That's why you need the wall. You don't let children go play with wolves. But now some, you know, some adventurous people may want to go uh, and, and sit out on the prairie and, you know, befriend the wolves, but you wouldn't put a little child there. So that's what the wall is for, to protect the vulnerable. So if we care about the vulnerable, if we care about the poor and the needy and the youngsters and, and, and those who are, are lacking strength, then the wall is important. Building the wall, the concept is in the New Testament, goes by the word edification. So you've looked that up in the New Testament, the authorized version. Edification means building up. When we edify the ecclesia, we are building up the ecclesia. What are towers for? Because every so often there's a tower. Yahweh's protection in a crisis. Yahweh's a strong tower. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower to run into in time of crisis. If we don't understand the name of Yahweh, we have a tower to run into. See, so these, these towers, I, I see them myself as sort of ecclesial strongholds, right? Uh, connected together. See, if, if you don't connect the strongholds together because you haven't got a wall, all you've got is a series of towers, each autonomous and self-contained and totally useless for the protection of the vulnerable. Now the strongholds are necessary because that's where the attack comes. You see that northern side of Jerusalem, it doesn't have the steep valleys around it to protect it. So the attacks of the Assyrians of Babylonians, they came from the north, right? So they didn't just have to repair those walls, they had to strengthen them. Right? So in some sense, there's the strongholds um, provided, if you like, the, the bulwark against the errors which would try to destroy the community. The foundation, of course, Christ and the apostles. Gates and bars control of who comes into the city. Right? The gates are locked at night. They have bars on them to stop the doors just being pushed open. Right? Uh, if you read the Ecclesial Guide, I think you'll see these sort of things coming through in a very, I think, a very gentle and lovely way, actually, not in a high-handed authoritarian way, 
but in a sense of caring for the community and why it's necessary for us to take responsibility for even the order of service, you know, Brother Robert says, let them sit down between things because, you know, they're going to be tired on their feet if you keep them standing for too long. You know, now whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but thought was given to how long people could stand on their feet. <laughs> Presumably prayers were that much longer in those days. Uh, so gates and bars, controlled access. Why? Protection of the young. Yeah, we want our young people to go to gatherings, to go to events, and to hear sound scripture and wise words of exhortation and good advice from uncles and aunties and so on. Yeah, that's what we want for our children and our grandchildren. And we had some of us went to the family day in rugby last last Saturday when Jonathan was speaking. Oh, it was a fantastic day. The whole atmosphere is one you could you could relax, you could enjoy it. You know that every class would have been taught the scriptures in a loving and kind way. Atmosphere was, you know, it's like an antidote to COVID lockdown in one day. It's like a, you know, uh, an immunoglobulin boost <laughs> for spiritual things. You know, um, yeah. What was I saying? Okay, gates and bars. If we don't have gates and bars, you can't have that. You can't. If there's no control, you can't have. You can't rest upon the activities. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, it, it, Shechaniah says to us, this matter belongeth to you. But the stronger we are, the more it belongs to us. We step aside and let things just happen because we can't be bothered or we don't like to be out of line. What will the Lord say to us? You let the wolves in. You open the door to the wolves. No, surely not. We wouldn't do that. Now that's uh, that's a farmer's wall near us in in Gower. It's uh, not much of a wall. Useless, isn't it? So it doesn't matter if you've got ninety nine percent of the wall. If there's one breach in the wall, then the fox is going to get in, is it? And the sheep are going to get out. Uh, so, so there's a responsibility across the city. What do broken walls mean? Loss of ecclesial integrity, leaving the flock vulnerable. Gates are burned, no control over fellowship. How does that happen? Well, I'm just going to tell you what I think. <laughs> the adoption of the spirit of the age, essentially. Social works community church, that's the spirit of the age. You'll find the religious Christian community in Britain talks about church now. Not the church, but church and churching, right? And church making and church building in a spirit of ecumenicism, of humanism, of uh, a social gospel. And it goes without argument that alternative lifestyles are welcome in that environment, because who's to say they're not? Well, I suppose the book would say they're not, but I'm not looking at that at the moment. We're going by how we feel about things. And of course that is open to the influence of the spirit of the age. And then there are moral issues and doctrinal errors, which might go uh, un, 
dealt with, maybe for the best motives, but misguidedly so. Um, and then we have perhaps a more sinister, but even more important influence. Materialism and sloth. Remember, Sodom. This was the sin of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. That was the sin of Sodom. And they sought out all those other sins. And it may be that we have to look to our own lives in this way to see whether materialism uh, has led us to be indifferent to those things that are going on. So, uh, I'm not, I don't give the impression I'm, you know, I, I'm going on some crusade here to, um, to tackle every issue that's going around. All I'm trying to be is honest from Ezra and Nehemiah to what the lessons are. I honestly didn't make these slides. I, I apologize. I didn't make these slides up for today. Right? These slides are two years old, three years old, right? four years old, sorry, four years old. Right? So, and that was before COVID and before a lot of the issues have flushed out in recent years. These are, I think, trying to be honest to what, what the lessons are for us today. Now, there's a gate in South Wales. <laughs> you can walk through it if you want to, but you don't have to, to get round. <laughs> There's no point having a gate without a wall, is there? Right? So, you know, you have to have... Gates are not to keep everybody out. Gates are to let people in as well, as keep some people out. <laughs> right? That's why we have interviews for baptism. Right? <laughs> Think about that. That's what a gatekeeper is, isn't it? Um, and... Interviews for baptism, maybe interviews, not the best word, but when, you know, once I've been involved with the Iranians recently, um, through an interpreter, the questions are, so what do you believe? What, what do you think about the Bible? What happens uh, when we die? Uh, you know, and so you're just asking them the basics of the gospel. And if they don't understand something, like if they don't really know what you mean by the promises to Abraham, you say, well, Okay, we better take some time out here because you know we thought we'd covered it, but obviously it's not really you know, figuring in your mind in the way we think it ought to. But we don't decide whether somebody's baptized or not; they decide. But we don't provide a form of words that makes baptism authentic. You read the ecclesial guide, Brother Robert said, no form of words. There's no one form of words. There's no any form of words that makes baptism baptism. Baptism is the confession of a good and honest heart, right? Who, of someone who believes the truth and wants to put on the saving name of the Lord Jesus. When Brother Thomas was baptized, he asked a friend who wasn't a believer to take him under the water. That person didn't make his baptism valid or invalid. It had nothing to do with that person or anything that person said. Right? We're not gatekeepers of the kingdom. We haven't got apostolic authority in that way. But it's surely our duty to uphold the truth and to make sure for the welfare of that person who wants to be baptized that we have, we've got them to understand what they think they believe. And if we abandon that, 
felt will be like the community that Ezra found when he came up to Jerusalem. So, yeah, some of the points. Find the foundation, build on the clear foundation, remove the rubble, right? Rediscover the zeal for sound exposition and exhortation in the true spirit. You know, when, when Ezra's building, Nehemiah's building the wall, do you remember what happens? I forget the clock, so I'm, it won't be too long. If, when, Ezra, when Nehemiah, chapter five, right, they're building the wall and there's a, there's a problem of welfare, right? And what Ezra, Nehemiah does is deal with that welfare problem. So they don't say, oh, look, some people have been hard done by this. There's not enough caring going on, but I can't deal with that now. We've got to build the wall, right? You know, I'm doing an interview for baptism. I can't be bothered with that poor person who's got that spiritual problem in the ecclesia, right? Now that can't be right, can it? So what they do, and Nehemiah in particular, he puts it right, and he gives of his own resources to help the needs of those who have been exploited. In other words, building the wall is not an alternative to welfare and care and love for the members of the, the ecclesia. It's not an alternative. So, oh, you're either hardliner or you're, you know, you're soft and loving and caring. And that's a caricature of ecclesial life. Nehemiah is looking after, through his own personal example and personal sacrifice, the welfare. Why is he building the wall? To look after them, to care for them, to protect them to nurture them. That's what the wall is for. It's not the alternative. So we have, to, we have to assess ourselves and ask, you know, what spirit we are doing some of these things we, we do or want to do, want others to do, uh, and not lose sight of the spirit of love and care that the Lord Jesus enjoins upon us. And yeah, healing spiritual hurt. You know, that, that's a, a massive part of what we have to do. So those, those points come out. Now, when they built the wall, of course, each family built a part of the wall. Each ecclesia yeah, builds part of the wall. But the, the point, I would make it like this. Look. If each ecclesia just builds a tower, there's no wall. And at some point, but because the wall is built on, on the foundation. Somebody's building a wall off-site. You don't join our wall up with their wall. <laughs> you only build up the wall on the foundation. Right? But at some point, the builders of one part of the wall and builders of the other part of the wall have to come together. At some point, where people holding the stone on this side <laughs> are holding the same stone as somebody on that side. And that's where we get a lot of issues, don't we? Of how we can work together as ecclesias. And I don't know 
wisdom to say, except let's tremble at the word. Let's be willing to cooperate on a sound basis. Right? Let's be willing to work together on the right foundation, allowing for differences of personality and perhaps you know, outlook in some ways, because we're all coming at it from different directions. Perhaps we're coming to the same spot. We're coming to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ to edify one another. And then the wall can grow. Maybe differences which are unresolvable until the Lord returns. But we're trying to build the wall, the wall, on the right foundation. That to me is the model that we're trying to follow. If somebody, if Sanballat's building a, a tower uh, on the other side of the valley, we're not going to try and join up. That would, that would be futile. So they built the wall and different people built the wall. But what I think is, is, uh, is important, when you come to chapter three, remember that gate of the fountain? Remember when there was all that rubble there? That Nehemiah couldn't go around? Some poor brother's job was to repair that part of the wall. And you think, oh, well, it's impossible. The problem's too big. We can't, we can't repair the ecclesial world at that spot. It's, it's just, it's too difficult. At the gate of the fountain repaired Shalom, the son of Kolhose. Yes, he built it and covered it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, the bars thereof, and the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's God, the pool of Silo, the pool of Silo, the pool where the blind man was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, who washed his face in the pool and he could see that pool. Brother Shalom, he repaired that bit. It's beautiful, isn't it? The unrepairable, the great uh, catastrophe. By the good hand of God, he repaired it. And part of that was the staircase, the staircase. Well, come to uh, chapter 12, come to chapter 12. Because when the wall was built and when they had celebrated um, by the reading of the word, by the way, in chapter eight, right? I say Nehemiah disappeared, didn't he? So, Ezra disappeared. So they, they, the wall is finished and they want to celebrate. So what they do, they have a, a Bible school day and everybody gets together and they want the word of God to be read. And what they do in chapter 8, verse 4, they get Ezra to read it. Ezra, where's he been? Ezra, the man behind the scenes. The exponent of the word that has motivated people to build a wall. Who are we going to get? You know, I say, oh, get Nehemiah to read. No. Come on, Ezra. Up you come. Up you come. We built this lovely pulpit for you to stand on, right? And in the center of that, look at verse 5 of chapter 8. Ezra opened the book. Now, it's a scroll, right? She's going to hold it up in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. What was elevated was the word of God. 
That was triumphant. It wasn't Ezra who was elevated. It was Ezra elevating the word of God. This was the secret of their success. And Ezra never thought it was possible. He was slumped down in despondency. But he must have struggled on and kept his classes going. Kept his instruction going. More and more people trembling at the word. Ezra, we finished the war. We want you to come and read the book. <laughs> and Ezra climbs up and, he re and the people are caused to understand it. And they rejoice when they understand it. When we come to chapter 12, they want to celebrate by walking around the walls. And they get Ezra to lead one of the parties round the wall. And Nehemiah will follow up the other and they will meet together at the prison gate where disciples have been released from the prison house of sin and death. Right? These two companies, two different personalities, instrumental in bringing the ecclesia into one whole, walking around the walls of Jerusalem. And we're told this in verse... Uh, um, yeah, verse 36. So, so there they are listed, those who, who walk. And this is where they walk, verse 37. And at the fountain gate, which was over against them, they went up by the stairs of the city of David. Why does it tell us that? Because that's the bit that was broken down so badly that Nehemiah couldn't pass. But Shalon had repaired it and the staircase. And so Ezra could lead his company of Bible students along the wall and climb up those very stairs which had been in such disrepair and join up with Nehemiah walking northward and around and they'd meet together in fellowship and unity. A type to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let's be encouraged by Ezra and When we're doing our daily readings now in Ezra and Nehemiah, let's be encouraged. Yes, there'll be problems. See how many problems. I've got a slide if you want to see it, of all the problems Nehemiah encountered. Yeah. Do you know what Nehemiah did just about every time? So I prayed. So I prayed. So I prayed. There's one time he didn't pray. When people came to him and said, there's too much to do. There's a lot of rubble and the workers be few. Ignored it. <laughs> Let's build the wall. Let's do it, dear brothers and sisters. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, 
Most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.